Okay, I guess we can go ahead and get started. Let's begin with an invocation prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Has American Christianity failed? Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We are going to pick up in the text uh, roughly where we left off, maybe a little bit ahead, but page 27 is where we're looking to go for the new material. In the last couple of pages, the last few pages, Pastor Wolfmuller has given us opportunity to consider the pendulum of pride and despair. Do you recall this? Where the, where the gospel is subtly replaced with the law or the law takes on such an emphasis that the gospel is eclipsed. Where you, where you have this law, then the human reaction to that is, is this pendulum that swings back and forth from pride to despair. You know, I've, I've got it, I'm handling it, I'm pulling off the Christian life or at least as good or better than average. That would be pride. And then despair would be, I'm not pulling it off, I must not really be a Christian, I'm just going through the motions, I must be a hypocrite, these kinds of feelings. And that's really all the law in and of itself. If you remove the gospel, that's all the law leaves you with, um, either pride or despair. Now, what happens when we bring in the gospel and we have this law and gospel dynamic at work? Well, then the law shows us that there's, I mean, both the law and the gospel show us that there's no room for pride because God's salvation is entirely by grace through faith, apart from works, apart from anything that might give us pride. You know, you can think of all the different scriptures that use this rhetoric of what then of boasting? It is excluded. That's why. And then likewise, there's no room for despair because our salvation, our daily standing before God is no longer viewed as dependent upon us in any way, but rather dependent upon Him. His goodness, not ours. His faithfulness, not ours. Um, He is the one who keeps His gospel promises, and so then there's no room for despair. So when we have law and gospel rightly ordered, the proper emphasis, then there's no room for either pride or despair. So that's the alternative. Now, one of the foundational points that Wolfmuller has brought to our attention is that the gospel is for Christians. And that's where we kind of left off on page 26 with um, what so often passes in American Christianity is the gospel is for unbelievers, you know, salvation in Christ, and as soon as you're saved, as soon as you've done your altar call or whatever, your sinner's prayer, whatever the case may be, then it's time to get busy, and then the law is increasingly put upon you. And so there's this sort of superficial thing that takes place where the the gospel is for unbelievers, the law is for believers. And what Wolf Mueller wants to remind us is that law and gospel are for all people. And that means in this instance in particular, we need to be reminded that the gospel is for Christians. There's not a day that goes by where we don't need to hear the gospel, remember our baptism, remember God's grace to us in Christ. So uh, he mentions he mentions that the midpoint of page 26. Make no mistake, the law is good. 
And that's something we always need to keep in mind. But the law does not save. It cannot comfort the sinner. Uh, it cannot comfort the Christian sinner. The Christian needs the gospel just as surely as the unbeliever. Okay, and thus then you can see, uh, by way of contrast, <clears throat> now American evangel or American Christianity, not necessarily meaning American evangelicalism or American Roman Catholicism or American Reformed, just in contrast to American Christianity in general, Lutheranism, when it's functioning its best, is putting forward the gospel of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins everywhere and always at the center. Everything else, it's, it's sort of, if you will, Luther used this analogy, it's, it's um, the, the hub of a wagon wheel, all the other spokes being the other articles of the faith. They, they flow from the article of justification in Christ alone, the forgiveness of sins, and, and in some sense they lead back to, they're always interconnected with the main hub of all Christian theology, which is the gospel, Christ's salvation. All right. What happens when we trust in our good works? And this is uh, moralism. We are introduced to this on page 27. Moralism is trusting in good works. What's one way that this gets skewed? Um, that good works themselves equate to moralism. Or, or teaching good works or encouraging good works is equated with moralism. Uh, that's an error. <laughs> It is rather trusting in good works that makes for moralism and makes for error. We trust in Christ, not our works. If we drop down to the second paragraph on page 27 under this subheading, Trusting in Good Works Moralism, Wolfmuller writes, This pride pushes itself into our theology. The logic goes like this. If God is mad at me because of my sins... He will be happy with me because of my works. This is the foundation of every non-Christian religion, the creed of every social organization, and the motto of every sensitive conscience. Our fallen reason thinks the most important thing is to be good, to do good, and to try hard. And you can see what's taking place here is, again, the way that, the way that Wolfmuller is lining this out is this is the system of justification. This is the way in which one has standing before God by our own goodness, what, what we are as good, what we do, and our efforts to be good. If you drop down, skipping a paragraph to the, the, uh, the last paragraph of, of substance on page 27, we're introduced to this Latin phrase, opinio legis. Wolfmuller writes, the ancient theologians called this the opinio legis, the opinion of the law, the most native and basic theology of our sinful flesh. It seems like we cannot help exalting our works as trophies. We demand judgment from God on the basis of the good things we've accomplished. We are convinced that we deserve heaven because of our works and efforts. When you ask people, will you go to heaven, they most often say yes. Why? We know 
that what the answer will be, the creed of the sinful flesh. I am a good person. Okay, so I think it's I think it's probably true enough. You you've probably experienced something similar anecdotally that if you talk to your average person out there, you know, do you think you'll go to heaven? You might have to say, if there is such a thing as heaven, <laughs> do you think you'll go there? Yes, of course. Why? Because I'm a good person. So this opinio legis, of course, I don't want to do too much of a deep dive here, but the way that the reformers get to this is because of texts like Romans 2, where the law is written on the hearts of all men, and their consciences accuse them or excuse them. Because the law is written onto the hearts of all men, and is so from creation, when the fall occurs, that law remains, and it remains in a way that, that then now also accuses and so we're constantly trying to make up for that accusation. We're trying, you know, and this is where, you know, it's a normal human thing that if you, if you mess up, you want to do something good to fix it. And then if, and, and Wolf Mueller's right that this is the basis of all systems of religion because all religions in this sense being derivative of this reality, you can think of even the most crass sort of things like, well, we want it to rain, and in order for it to rain, we have to do X to get the Y. This kind of quid pro quo religion that is at the heart of all religions really extends from this opinio legis, this law alone written in our hearts and our sinful condition coupled with it. Okay, so then thus the prevailing idea that we can make ourselves good people by simply balancing the tables, by making up for all of our debits with enough credits, our sins with good works, and we can at least, at least uh, stand before God saying, hey, I broke even. And of course, God's law thunders against this point. There is none who does good, no, not one. Right? So then that is the astonishing accusation of the law of God over and against this opinio legis is that, no, you are not, in fact, good. You have not, in fact, balanced the books. Um, without that gospel, there's nothing left to do but despair. And so when the gospel follows, then uh, we see that God has done what we have not in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's this idea, trusting in good works built into us, built into our fallen condition, Moralism. We want to trust in Christ, not our good works. Over on the top of page 28, moralism teaches that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. To be judged by God on the basis of works is to be condemned. None is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Isaiah 64, 6. So, two scriptural references there demonstrating this point. If we skip the next paragraph, just drop down to paragraph that begins, Trust in Works. Trust in works is the foundational teaching of every non-Christian religion. This trust in works is also a constant temptation for the Christian. 
The first is salvation through works without Jesus. The second is salvation through works with the help of Jesus. Both are salvation through works. Both are wrong. This is the danger of trusting in our good works. Okay? So that's our, that's our critique outside of Christendom and inside of Christendom. Um, if salvation is in any way dependent upon what a human being does, then it's no longer grace. It's no longer gift. It's earned. It's due. And then what we see astoundingly throughout all of the scriptures, most emphatically in the New Testament, is that Christianity is a religion of grace alone. Grace apart from works. Grace in Christ Jesus our Savior, period. So that puts us on our guard then in any religion, whether it calls itself Christianity or something else, whereby we are made right before God by our own works. A couple other verses that Wolfmuller points out. Of course, when we think that we're right by our own works, we fall into this delusion that that's possible and that if anyone's pulling it off, I am, and um, we fall into that Pharisee camp. He quotes at the bottom, toward the bottom of page 28, Matthew 9, 12, the words of our Lord, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So the law of God comes and reveals to us the true condition of our hearts that we are not good and cannot make ourselves good. We are indeed sick, and Christ came for the sick. And then toward the top of 29, at the end of that first full paragraph, uh, he quotes the next, uh, the next verse, Matthew 9, 13, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, Jesus says. Now, in these words of Jesus, is he conceding that there are, in fact, people who are righteous? No, of course not. He's not conceding in the previous verse that there are people who have no need of a physician, nor is he um, suggesting that there are righteous who have no need of him. Rather, it is those who think themselves well, those who think themselves to be righteous. We can see the clear sense of his rhetoric then. I did not come to call those who think they are righteous, but sinners. All right, as we just scan down the page of 29 in that rather, that rather large text or font, good works can be the subtlest, most common, and most dangerous idols kind of a provocative point. And the very, uh, the very last partial sentence on 29, let's pick up there. Our works, because we are tempted to trust in them, can even stand in the way of salvation. When we confess this, we are renouncing the doctrine we were born with. You know, that's the, that's the opinio legis, the idea that we can justify ourselves. When we put away the delusion of our own righteousness, we are at last ready for the righteousness of another. Faith begins when the trust in our works ends. 
You know, and that's an interesting question. So if your average Orange Countian out there who is a non-believer and you were to go up to them and say, you know, um, are you planning on going, you know, will you get into heaven? They say, okay, well, if there is a heaven, yeah, sure, I'm going to go in. Why will you get in? They say, well, I'm a good person. What would your, what would your response be? The law. The law, right. I mean, if this is the prevailing view of our, in our culture, working in the mind, you, we have to begin with the law. We have to begin with some, some line of questioning, probably would be the most effective, to get them to consider whether or not they are, in fact, good, and by whose judgment, by whose criteria. And then in showing them God's judgment and God's criteria, we can lead them to see that they are, in fact, not good, or to use the biblical language, not righteous, not well, but indeed sick, indeed in need of a savior. So I simply bring that out and bring that to bear because this is what, this is what Lutherans have always taught, is that the law precedes the gospel and is sort of a necessary precondition of the gospel, the gospel proper doing the converting. But in order to receive the physician, we must first come to realize we're sick. Otherwise, we'll never receive him. And that then, that then kind of calls to question this modern approach, which is, you know, foisted upon us sometimes in Lutheran circles, that what people are really ailing from out there is they need to know they're forgiven. Well, in what sense does a person who thinks themselves to be good and good enough to get into heaven have a need to be forgiven? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, they might admit that, like, okay, yeah, well, I'm not perfect, so I guess I'll take the forgiveness, thanks, but I don't really need it. I've already told you I'm going to heaven because I'm basically a good person. So, our, again, our task, and we don't have to slam people over the head of this. We don't have, uh, with, with this, we don't have to be ham-fisted about it. Um, we don't have to be pedantic or demeaning. We can simply ask questions kind of pick at the presuppositions, um, but try, try in service of our neighbor to get them to doubt their own goodness so that, and doubt their own wellness, making room then for the hope that is within us, which is the hope of Jesus our Savior. Okay, so that kind of gets us at the, uh, kind of the diagnostic task and the, the task of evangelism, sharing this good news with our contemporaries. All right, so the opposite of trusting in works is trusting in Christ, and that's faith. So that last line that we had read from Wolf Mueller at the top of page 30, faith begins when the trust in our works ends. And then the gigantic text here. Faith is the anti-work, the unwork. Faith is not doing but believing and trusting someone else. Our salvation, our justification, is by faith and faith alone apart from works. Okay, so we are certainly here considering faith in light of justification. And a distinction used by our Lutheran reformers to talk about this uh, was Fides passiva and fides activa. Do we have two faiths? No. One faith with these two different aspects, like one coin with two sides. 
In one way, we're going to talk about the faith that God gives us in consideration of justification, and that's the way in which we're going to conceive of it as fides, faith, passiva, passive. Faith is simply that which receives, okay? And that's what Wolfmuller is doing here. Faith is the anti-work, the unwork. Faith is not doing but believing and trusting someone else. Our salvation, our justification is by faith and faith alone apart from works. Okay? Now, we want to go ahead and say the other side of the coin, the other aspect of faith is fides activa, faith active. Faith is a living and active thing, Luther says, that is doing, busy doing good works before it is even told to. And so that's faith active, faith working itself out in love, to use scriptural language. So when we're talking, and, and here we're talking in the context of what we Lutherans call sanctification, okay? the good works, the fruit that our faith bears. So we want to have these two things in mind. What justifies us before God? Faith that is passive, faith that simply receives, faith that trusts in another. And yet, in receiving that gift of faith from God, paradoxically, it is precisely that faith that then produces all manner of good works. The fruits of the Spirit come through that primary gift of faith. Let me pause there and see if you have any thoughts or any questions on this distinction between passive and active faith. Um, or maybe more narrowly what Wolf Mueller is here writing. The hardest part for me is finding... Oh, oh, hold on one second. We've got to get you a microphone. Thank you so much for your willingness to do that for us. Um, the hardest part is finding the in-between. When you look at King David, some of the sins that he did, but he also recognized some of this, but it's the hardest part in our own lives to see, hey, if you don't see anything, you know, or let's say you cut somebody off or slamming somebody, or if you feel in the mood to just slam into them anyway in the <laughs> parking lot, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so, so this is, I mean, this is an interesting thing, and, and this is where I go, because we're talking, th this framework you know, this way of speaking, come, it comes right out of the scriptures. Of course, it gets sharpened and honed in the medieval dialogue between the reformers and the Roman Catholic theologians. But the idea that we're, that we're justified by grace through faith apart from works is thoroughly biblical. You can find this in any number of Paul's texts in exactly this language. In fact, this, this language of um, alone or apart from works there's all kinds of ways of phrasing this in Scripture, and our Lutheran reformers call these the exclusive particles because they all work to exclude works from salvation. And there's this huge list given to us in our confessions of the exclusive particles. So, thoroughly biblical doctrine. Where this gets honed in the context of the Reformation, of course, is because uh, Rome will say that we're, we're saved by grace, grace working through us producing good works, faith producing love, and, and so, so faith passive and faith active are blurred together. And you might say, well, this is all just sophistry and academic intellectual distinction that has no bearing. Not true, because where the rubber hits the road on this then is 
how is one justified before God? How does one stand before God, present tense, and at the judgment seat? Is it on the basis of his goodness to us in Christ Jesus alone, that righteousness gifted to us, or is it on the basis of some righteousness inherent within us? Two entirely different answers. If it's based in some way upon the righteousness inherent within us, how much? How much? Have you done enough to demonstrate that you're a Christian? Do you have enough fruits of the Spirit to be recognized by God as worthy of eternal life? And so this question of how much um, ends up destroying faith. So now we see then to make the distinction between fides passiva and fides activa, passive and active faith, is absolutely necessary, required by the scriptures and required in such a way that we retain the gospel over and against this doubt of like, well, if it's my works, how much? Salvation is not by our works at all, but by faith alone, by faith passive. Oh, then says Rome, so you're against good works. No, now we're considering the other side of faith, the active side of faith, through which the Holy Spirit produces all manner of fruit and good works in us. So anyway, this is the way that this is developed. You can see it thoroughly biblical, sharpened and honed by historical circumstances and argument. And um, then, then one of the beautiful frameworks to come out of this is as we're wrestling with the kinds of things you're wrestling with and that St. Paul wrestles with in Romans chapter 7, the good that I want to do, I do not. The evil that I don't want to do, that I do. Who will save me from this body of death? And then he answers, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus my Lord. Not thanks be to God, I'll finally merit my way out of this or thanks be to God, I'll finally get it all cleaned up or I'll tip the balance between credits and debits. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus my Lord, through his work alone. So that's the thing we want to keep in our mind. We can get kind of sophisticated with this, as Luther does in his Galatians uh, lectures. We can say then that the law, you know, as we're reckoning with ourselves, the law belongs to our flesh. So you have the urge, I think you said, to crash into something or something like that. Um, yeah, so, so we, want to, we want to put the law there, not the gospel, because if we put the gospel, it'll be like, well, Christ has forgiven you. Maybe go ahead. Just a little smash, you know, just a little. Uh, <laughs> So we want to keep the law in the flesh and say, absolutely not. If you do that, you're damned. Don't, don't you dare. Um, now, on the other hand, while the law is in the flesh, we want to put the gospel in the conscience, the gospel in the inner man, and say, you have been forgiven by Christ. So that um, the law has no place there. You know, just as the gospel has no place in the flesh, otherwise you're going to go, ah, a little smash is okay. God's grace will cover that too. What happens if you put a little law in the conscience? Then it's, then it's sort of like, well, I know God's good to me, but I've got to fill in the blank. And the problem is there's always doubt. There's always room. And as soon as you say, I have filled in the blank, what are you doing then? Pride. Yeah. As soon as you say, oh, I can never fill that in, or I can't be sure that I filled that, what are you doing? Despair. So you've let the law into your conscience. You've let doubt into your conscience. So, Yes, please. So is what you're describing the suffering of the Christian? Because once we've received our faith passively and gotten through the terror of our inability to do anything about it, we certainly are then striving towards sanctification and being a better person, but also knowing that we can't do anything, that's when the evil one starts to be the drug dealer and the policeman, mm -hmm. both, you know, working in that way. Mm. 
how does the Holy Spirit and God himself work on us supernaturally to get us to be a better person? I mean, that's kind of yeah. the circle of doom that happens. <laughs> right, right. So, so the, I mean, the miraculous thing is, is that God uses all the evils that the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh continues. He ends up using all those for the good of those who love him. So there's a process there, and it's very difficult because we don't always see it or experience it. We have to believe and trust that it's there. That's the, that's the challenge. But that, that you know, even, this is where Luther says that even the devil is God's devil. That means he's God's servant. He's not ever going to do anything more or less than God wants him to do. He's never going to do anything more or less than serve God's good purposes that are simply inescapable. And that's true for the world, and that's true even for our own sinful flesh. So, yeah, as we're, um, as we're wrestling through these things, it really helps us to grab a hold of the biblical modes of speech and the biblical paradigms of thought. And the predominant one is to realize that we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Okay? So immediately upon conversion, we're already at root, at core, a new man and conformed into the image of Christ. But that takes on a continued maturation throughout our lives. What does that mean? Well, very concretely, it means that we learn how to suffer in faith. We learn how to die in faith. I mean, isn't that... The, isn't that the height of who Christ is? Even through his life and ministry, he's constantly doing so in the midst of opposition of man and demon. He's remaining faithful despite these things, despite the great cost to him personally, right up into his passion and cross, where he teaches us to be faithful, even when suffering, to be faithful unto death. And ultimately, the climax of this, I mean, the highest the highest possible climax of all of this is to be faithful even when God has in fact forsaken him. So we then, as little Christ, as little anointed ones, as, as little new men, um, are being conformed in this image and we're learning how to trust God despite appearances and experiences to the contrary, to trust God despite sufferings, to trust God even as we approach our own death and then to trust God even when ostensibly, experientially, it seems as though he's completely forsaken us. To trust him even then. That's, this is the highest glory and honor. Um, it's, it's the highest testing also to, to kind of sort of experience these things. And I would say too, it's nothing that we should necessarily aspire to. We don't go out seeking to be tested. We don't go out seeking a dark night of the soul. We don't go out seeking these extremes. And I would honestly say, too, that maybe uh, very many Christians don't experience quite the fullness, quite the extremes. Um, just because we are all conformed into the image of Christ doesn't mean we lose our individuality and doesn't mean that God has different design and purpose and different maturation dates, if you will, for each, for each one of us. And so there's a, a diversity of gifts, a diversity of members. We're all part of the one body. So we have that, that comfort, too, that, that our experience with suffering isn't necessarily going to be a one-size-fits-all, but it is going to be precisely that suffering which we individually need uh, to be conformed into the image of Christ and the fullness of his glory that, that God intends for us. The Book of Concord, I'm sorry to ramble on, by the way, but the Book of Concord has this wonderful section. I probably read and or quote it 
uh, almost once a week here lately. Um, but it comes from the article on election in the Formula of Concord, Article 11. And it's taking a line from Paul out of Romans. And it's, it's illustrating that, that what Paul is showing us is that God, before the foundation of the world, not only elected us, um, and then reveals that election through baptism and the Lord's Supper and the preaching of the gospel in time and space, but that then he also necessarily elects for us the sufferings that we'll endure, the ways in which he's going to mold and shape us into the image of Christ and into the final glory that we'll receive. This is all done before the foundation of the world. So we can say then, nothing happens by accident. Everything happens by God's good purposes. It's not out of his control. It's not chaotic. It's not without meaning. It's precisely all meant to lead us to heaven and into the fullness of who God intends us to be. This is, this is so very comforting, so very comforting. Because I can't tell you how many times we get overwhelmed in our trials and sometimes it's just one straw after another and you wonder which one's going to break the camel's back. And you go, this is chaos and, you know, this is, and God isn't, obviously isn't intending this and I'm overwhelmed. And the flip side of all that is God is intending this. He's foreordained it. It's okay. He's with you. He's your father. He's, he's going to give you more than you can bear in the same way that, you know, Fathers give their children more than they can bear, not to crush them, but to strengthen them and to grow them and mature them. And so our Heavenly Father is doing for us. And it's very painful and very difficult in this life. This is how the author of Hebrews talks. It's very painful. It's very difficult. No child, when they're receiving discipline, goes, oh, yeah. But only after the discipline is passed and the wisdom has been gained, then do you see it and appreciate it. And that's, that's much how we're going to be once we are removed from this life and we look back on it, we're going to say, okay, it wasn't fun to go through, but now I see the profound wisdom of God and what he was doing. And I give thanks and praise to God, ironically, for the bad things. And perhaps even, I think this is one of the deepest ironies, perhaps even more for the bad things than for the good things. Yeah, that we would bless God for those sufferings in the end more than we'd more than we'd bless him for the ostensibly and obviously good things that we receive. Yeah. Oh, you have to have the microphone, yeah. The only problem with that is when you're going through it. And when you bring up, like, Job. Yeah. yeah. Now, God created Job, and he said, oh, yeah, look at my servant Job. So the thing comes back to me is nothing personal, but, Lord, don't, I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't <laughs> right. want to be, chosen to be your vessel if that's you know that's the part that's the hard part yeah i mean here here you can see exactly the function and role of job as a as a type of christ and we see in job what job lacks christ has but we also see then in job's lacking our own lacking and we're encouraged to be at least as faithful as he is faithful. And we're also given some answers by God, which are fascinating in Job, aren't we? I mean, I, Job's one of those books that truly humbles us because it, it's like, I, I think my, my favorite way that I've heard it expressed is that God doesn't give Job the answers he's seeking. In the end, God simply gives Job himself. And I love that. It's such a profound reflection. I think it's true of the book of Job, but I think in many respects it's true of all of life. If we really had all the answers to all our questions, we'd become omniscient. We'd become God. 
At a certain point, we don't need more answers. We need to simply accept that God is God and we are his children. And what great comfort there is in not receiving an answer from God, but simply receiving God, simply having God say, I'm your father. I've got this. You don't need to know. <laughs> Where were you when I formed the foundations of the world, right? You don't, you don't need, there's some things you don't need to know, um, but you can trust me. And it's just such beautiful comfort then in that angle. Okay, well, that was a bit of a digression. I apologize for that, but hopefully of some fruit and value, um, you know, for all of us, some encouragement in these difficult times. Okay, well, we don't need to belabor the point. Trusting in good works is harmful. Are good works harmful? No. <laughs> Trusting in good works are harmful. Okay, um, so that, that right there is just taking on this distinction we've been talking about from a different angle. Now, over on page 31, Wolfmuller introduces us to a biblical distinction, and I'll just put a big caveat here. Uh, God wants sons, not slaves. And that's true. But of course, one of the biblical motifs is that, is that God, and, and specifically Jesus, is our master and we are his slaves. So we're not going to demonize this paradigm, and I don't think Wolfmuller does either. In fact, I think later on he acknowledges this. The, uh, in many of the English translations where the apostles introduce themselves as servants of Christ, that's like Americanized. They're literally saying slaves of Christ, um, owned by Christ, possessions of Christ, um, subject to Christ's will. And isn't that a, the, the very things we aspire to? Yeah, I, absolutely. So there's a right way in which we can view the master-slave paradigm. Um, but equally true that there's this other paradigm where if we think in, in different terms, uh, God does in fact want sons and not slaves. The key element, of course, is how does a slave, um, how does a servant, and in our context maybe an employee, um, maybe you have somebody uh, clean your house or something or do your yard work. How do, they, how do they keep their job? How do they keep their place? By working. If they were to stop working or stop doing a good job, out they go. So that's the, that's the point at which we're, we're using the language of slave. Now, you know, what happens, what happens with your children if they stop working or stop performing or they don't go out, right? And that's the difference between a, a son and a slave. And, and God wants us to understand ourselves as his sons, not his slaves. If we fail, if we mess up, if we botch things, he's not going to fire us. That's the point. And then the converse of that is we don't need to live as Christians as if we're in constant danger of being fired. We can entrust ourselves to him. That he is our gracious Father. In fact, he's so gracious, he doesn't even count our sins against us. Does that give us liberty to sin? Absolutely not. In fact, in fact, what a horror that would be to tread upon this awesome love of our God and Father. We, we, that's the last thing we're thinking. We're simply taking comfort in who he is in the relationship he wants to have with us. So essential that when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, it begins, Our Father. Now. Yeah. And so we're to see ourselves as sons, not slaves. Now, the prodigal son is the uh, par parable par excellence for gaining this. Uh, Wolfmuller goes into it very art artfully, and I commend that to you if you haven't read it already. But um, if you remember the prodigal son, of course, he departs from his father. He is 
a son. He departs from his father. He's, he takes his portion of the inheritance. He squanders the inheritance. He ends up feeding pigs in the muck, longing for their food. He comes to his senses and he concocts this plan. I'm going to go back not as a son, but as a servant or slave. That's his plan. I'm going to tell my father, I'm unworthy to be your son. Receive me as a, as a slave. Okay. And then over on page 32, we get to the father's response. Of course, the father will hear none of this. In fact, in the parable that Jesus tells is so delightful, the, the father completely ignores this rehearsed statement of the son. Uh, let me be your let me be as one of your hired workers. Let me be as one of your slaves. Um, on page uh, 32, the second paragraph. Meanwhile, back at home, the father has been scanning the horizon ever since his son left. At last, he sees his son in the distance. He grabs his robes and runs down the path. If we were surprised that the father handed the inheritance to the son, we are astonished to see him running, kicking up the dust, racing to his son. There is no holding back with this father, no concern for his dignity, no vengeance, no anger, no malice, no retaliation. No requirement, no waiting for a confession, no making a deal. There is only a father with a face bursting with joy, sprinting to his beloved son, wrapping his arms around him and embracing him with a completely unexpected kindness. Can you see it? The father hugging and kissing his son as the son tries to make his rehearsed confession. Father, I'm not worthy. I've come to be your slave. The father cuts him off. He'll have none of it. Get the robe, the ring, the fattest calf. Today we feast, we laugh, we rejoice. My son was dead and is alive. This boy wants to be a slave. This gracious father will have him only as his son, his blessed, loved, forgiven son. What a fantastic picture of the gospel. So well taken when we consider uh, a slave as such and a uh, son as such, God wants sons and not slaves. Of course, then you have the oldest son, and in that next paragraph, um, the oldest son is also considers himself a slave, a slave of obedience to the father. So remember, that's the... I've done everything you asked, everything you required, and I haven't even so much as been given a goat with my friends. You, know. you can see the internal rationale there. It's not one of a loving son who does his father's good pleasure because he loves him, um, but it's one of, hey, these are the things I've done for you, and you owe me, and you haven't paid me anything, and this is not just. So he sees himself as a slave as well. It's one of the interesting parts of this, uh, of this parable. Wolf Mueller then finds three slaveries, and he introduces that at, uh, toward the top of page 33. Three slaveries in the text. One, the hedonistic slavery to passions and sin, that is the prodigal son and his debauchery, right, to be a slave to sin. We can think of other scriptures that support that. Number two, the slavery of despair of God's mercy. The prodigal son and his rehearsed repentance. Okay. So the prodigal son doesn't know who his father is, doesn't trust in his father's goodness, mercy, 
love. And so he concocts this idea of, I'm, I, I'm not going to receive his mercy. I don't believe in his mercy. I'm going to work my way back in. Uh, so he despairs of mercy, and, in, and this is the opinio legis at work. He tries to justify himself, tries to make up for his wrongs with enough rights. So that's the second slavery, slavery of despair of God's mercy. And then the third slavery of the text that Wolfmuller finds, the slavery of obedience to God's commandments. Now, again, we want to be careful with this because um, there's a right way and a wrong way to understand that phrase. Of course, as Wolfmuller points out, he's referring to the older son and his pouting pride. So we don't want to take this, and we could take this in the biblical sense, of course we want to be slaves to God's commandment. Of course we want to be slaves to God's will. That's what it means to be a slave and have God as our master. But that's not the point that's being made here. The point is this idea of um, the relationship the older son has to his father is, um, hey, I must do all these things to be a dutiful son. I have done all these things to be your dutiful son. You owe me. And this is, a, this is then how you can see it is a slavery of obedience to God's commandments. It's not the obedience of a loving son. It's the obedience of a slave who wants something. And in particular then, of course, when our justification, our standing before God is, is seen in this way, our relationship dynamic with God is the same as the relationship dynamic between the older son and the father. That illustrates this third slavery. In gigantic print, Wolfmuller writes, the slavery of despair and the slavery of pride are really two sides of the same coin, the opinio legis, which measures our standing before God by our own works and efforts. How have I measured up? According to the opinio legis, the younger son was a miserable sinner and had by his sin exempted himself from the father's house. According to the opinio legis, the older son had earned a place in the father's house by his faithful and unswerving obedience to the father. So you kind of here see a, a parable of two sons who both think they're slaves and a father who's trying to get them to see that they are in fact his sons. Yeah, please. Oh, sorry, we've got to get you the microphone. Sorry about that. Um, just an observation. In the parable, though, he, Jesus does not refer to the father casting the older son out of the house either. Oh, absolutely not. So he's still saved and forgiven for his pride, I guess, my first Yeah, well, the, pun the punch of Jesus' parable, if I'm recalling correctly at the end, is that he is inviting his, the, the older son, he's inviting him in to join the party. And it's left unknown whether he does or not. The rhetorical punch of that is that, these, that this parable is told to the Pharisees. So, if you will, the sinners who they're accusing Jesus hanging out with are like the prodigal son, who's now been welcomed and Jesus is welcome, welcoming them. The ones who are scoffing at this are the Pharisees. And we see in the parable that the father is calling the older son in as well. Jesus is calling the Pharisees in as well. Will they come or not? That's the rhetorical punch of leaving the, the end of the parable open um, as if those Pharisees have to decide for themselves. And in a sense, as we read that text, that's the rhetorical punch that hits us too. 
Um, you know, God has mercy on people who, frankly, we might not have mercy on. Uh, isn't this the tale of Jonah? I mean, if, as long as we're not too arrogant to, you know, where we're saying, oh, Jonah, poof, uh, thank you, God, for making me me and not Jonah. Um, but, but this is the Jonah impulse that we all, frankly, have, which is, we're good with God's grace, just there's some people so, who are so heinous they're outside that grace, <laughs> you know. And, um, of course, Jonah has great reason for thinking that the Ninevites were absolute savages and torturers of people and kind of made Hitler look like milk toast. And God's offering them salvation, and Jonah says, pardon me. Um, and that's, you know, and that, that in effect is, um, is at least unimpulse within the Pharisees who are seeing tax collectors, turncoats, traitors, and prostitutes, people who have dedicated and devoted their lives to sin and causing others to sin. When they see grace, they say, given, given an extended to those people, they say, oh, there's got to be a line drawn there. And I would venture to say that if we're willing to be open to our Lord's words, we would find a challenge to our own hearts. There are certain people and classes of people or sins or kinds of sins that we would have a hard time seeing God's grace simply extended outright to them. So that is the rhetorical punch of this parable as it goes on. Um, will we join the party of the forgiveness of sinners who don't deserve it and then identify ourselves as such? Yeah. Okay, so to tie this back in to where we began, we began with uh, this consideration of the pendulum between pride and despair. And on the top of 34, in these first two paragraphs, Wolf Mueller shows us that the younger son is despairing, and then in the next paragraph, the older son is proud. What's the common denominator? They're both seeing their relationship to the father as one on the basis of works and merit and credit and this kind of thing. The younger son obviously despairs because he's completely failed and he knows it. The older son is proud and angry because he thinks he's fulfilled it. And so we can see that this pendulum between pride and spare, you know, isn't a figment of Wolfmuller's imagination or Lutheran imaginations, but really comes to us right out of the scriptures in this and many other examples. We're going to have to feed you after this. I always feel the same way with Barry when he's running around. So many calories burned. Yes. When, when the when the estate was divided up, this, the older son got his share, and he's he makes the comment, "You never did anything for me," and I'm, I'm I have that problem with, well, you have your stuff, you were given the same amount that the other son was given, so why are you acting like, you know, like you weren't given anything? The father is the one that broke up the estate and give each of the sons a part, you know. And so he comes, you know, in the dialogue, he comes and says, hey, you never did anything for me. And I'm thinking, well, you have your own sheep. Why aren't you, you know, you're almost like Nathan coming to David. Uh, he, well, I think that that, again, factors into the perception of the older son, that he doesn't in fact perceive himself as a son. If he did, he'd realize exactly what the father says. Everything I have is yours. He doesn't view himself as a son, and so he doesn't see that, that his inheritance is all around him, and 
in a sense already realized and will officially and formally be, be realized upon his father's death. Um, but because he sees himself as a slave and in this meritorious thing, he doesn't see it as his. He sees it as a promise unfulfilled, as a thing not yet his and won't become his because it's going to be squandered probably again on this other son. Uh, so yeah, it's, I think it's indicative of his own faulty view. He doesn't view himself as a son. He doesn't trust his father. Which, you know, I think that that's, um, that, is, that is also, it's very interesting because you have like sort of the, the outright rebel and the subtle rebel are both of these sons, right? The, the rebel who's clean on the outside but has a rebellious heart inside and the one who like is just like forget it, let the inside and the outside match. They both, they both you know, in, in a sense don't want their father but want the inheritance, and are concerned with their blessing and reward, not the person of the Father. There, there's a whole sermon there to be preached, no doubt, and a whole way of thinking. I sometimes think of this, uh, you know, it, it strikes me very poignantly, where Christians want all the blessings and benefits of heaven and then mention nothing about God. <laughs> you kind of, <laughs> you know, I can't wait to be in heaven with so-and-so and so-and-so and enjoying this and doing that and not suffering this and having that. And, that. and it's like, you're kind of missing the main thing. <laughs> You know, you're kind of missing, like, God, <laughs> you know, Jesus. Yeah, so that's something um, for us to be conscious of, too. Um, I think it's why Jesus in, in John's Gospel is praying to the Father, and he says, this is eternal life. I love his description of it, because he doesn't describe, like, this place of blessing and benefit and wonder and the reunion of the saints and all of these other things which are true and good and right, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, he's speaking to the Father, and the one whom you sent. He sees me. I mean, that was, that, when, I, when I first, that dawned on me. It changed the way I looked at everything because it's, eternal life isn't so much a place, it's God. It's having God, knowing God, it's having a father, being a son, it's being welcomed into that relationship. I can have eternal life in this world or the next or a worse world or <laughs> wherever I may find myself. Um, to have the Father and have the Son is to have eternal life and to be able to endure all things. It's such a profound blessing. It really changes, and changes the way in which you perceive heaven, you know. But you bring up Jonah. Is that, is that the I'll paraphrase. I'll, I'll recap. I brought up Jonah, yes. Yeah. And uh -huh. you can see Jonah makes the comment. Jonah knows God. And he makes the statement, I knew you were going to be merciful. Right, right. So even when he knows his character yeah. the Father, he's still angry. Yeah. It doesn't change his outward thing. He's not a nice person. But he said, I knew you were going to be merciful. That's how I mm -hmm. didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. And then God is, God is merciful to Jonah, even when he's grumpy. Remember the tree growing and all this stuff. And of course, the worm eats the tree. The, but the, uh, you know, the punchline of Jonah is much the same as the punchline of um, this parable that Jesus tells. It's left open-ended. We don't know the ending. We don't know if Jonah comes to his senses or not. We don't know if the older brother comes to his senses or not. We, d we don't know. That's precisely the art and beauty and rhetorical point. Um, what about you? You know, that's really the point that, that the entire book of Jonah and this parable of Jesus drive is, what about you? Will, will you permit grace? Will you join the party? Will you, yeah. Please. Well, I've never really looked at it that way before, and you probably said this, but the older son is trying to earn his father's love and 
earn his place mm -hmm. and doing what he considers good works. The younger son is totally fallen, chief of sinners, mm -hmm. and the father accepts him. And so we've heard that before. How can they repent on their deathbed and still be forgiven when I've been doing all these good things my whole life? It's pretty succinct. I've never really looked at it that way. Yeah. Yeah, this, I mean, this, paro, this parable that Jesus teaches is just a magnificent uh, parable of many, many different purposes and uses. Um, I, think, I think upon upon deepest reflection, we find both sons in ourselves. We find both impulses within ourselves. We find both feelings within ourselves. Um, and we find the invitation to be sons, rather than sons in name only who perceive ourselves to be slaves, to fully be sons, to fully know who our Father is and entrust ourselves to Him. Right? That's the invitation. It's the gospel invitation. Okay, so just a few minutes. Let's see if we can't. Uh, let's see if we can't just wrap up very quickly this uh, this chapter. So again, the, as the heading indicates on thirty four, the father wants sons, not slaves. Um, and then we've got a couple at the end of this first paragraph. We've got a quotation to this effect of Jesus from John chapter fifteen. No longer do I call you servants, Jesus says to his disciples. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And then Wolfmuller continues, Now the scriptures do speak of the Christian as being bound to the Lord and being the servant, or slave of God. But this is a mysterious servitude. It is a slavery that makes us free, a bondage that is in fact true liberty. That's exactly right. So um, we are resting from our works, Hebrews 4.10. No longer storming heaven or impressing God with our effort. We are no longer running from his wrath. We are forgiven. And this means we are free. Of course, Jesus says in John 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Then there's this great story. Jesus made a decision for you. I'm going to just read through this as quickly as I can. Once while I was patiently waiting in line to return a movie, boy, that's dating oneself, isn't it? <laughs> a little lady tottered up to me and asked abruptly, what do you do? I'm a Lutheran pastor. Oh, she said, I'm a Baptist. What's the difference? What a surprise this conversation was. Well, I began, I suppose in your church they have a time of decision at the end of service. Yes, an altar call. Right, an altar call. A time to receive Jesus into your life and pray the sinner's prayer. Yes, she said. Lutherans do things a bit differently. Instead of asking the sinner to receive Jesus, we ask if Jesus has received us. Instead of asking the sinner to dedicate his or her life to Christ, we ask if Christ has given his entire life and died for us. Instead of asking sinners to pray, we ask if Jesus prays for us. And the answer to this question is a sure and certain yes. She started crying. That's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. For so many Christians, uh, so many American Christians, their certainty is wobbly and their faith is unsure because it is built on the weak foundation of self, on their decision, their works, their experiences, their inner life, their resolve. 
these things are unsure. This chasing after certainty found in oneself is a failure of American Christianity. These things were never meant by God to give us certainty. We were meant to be uncertain about ourselves, but sure of God. Our confidence is not in ourselves, in the things we decide, the things we do, or the things we feel. Our confidence is not in our goodness or the goodness of our works. Our confidence is in Christ, faith in Jesus, His works, His words, and His love for sinners is our confidence. We are dubious, Jesus is sure. Jesus is the one who died and was raised. He sits at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. He sends the Holy Spirit with the word of promise to give faith and impute righteousness. These things are sure. When Jesus is the one saving and rescuing and delivering, then our salvation and rescue and deliverance are sure. Just skipping down a paragraph or so, he quotes from 1 John 3.20. John hands us over to this kind of certainty when he writes, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So this is, um, you know, this is a beautiful statement, of course, of the objectivity of the Christian faith. And what Lutheran theology in particular has to offer American Christianity, because we have, to the best of our ability, and not perfectly to be sure, but to the best of our ability, we've retained this objectivity, the centrality of Christ and his gospel. Um, whereas on page 37, Wolf Mueller notes that American Christianity strives for certainty without the gospel. The entire point is uh, of Christianity is not our striving, but how God has in fact striven for us and won our salvation once and for all on the cross and then gives us those blessings and benefits in word and sacrament. And so that's the, uh, it's the way in which American Christianity has failed and the way in which biblical Christianity has not. And indeed, biblical Christianity needs to be rediscovered and uh, made popular once again. Next week, chapter 2, we'll talk about God Speaks. We're going to dig into um, some of the ways that American Christianity gets, gets um, the Bible right, and then some of the ways in which it lacks. And um, this difference in regard to the doctrine of the Word, of course, has immense bearing on us and uh, the confidence we have in, in Christ Jesus. So... Until next week, and always, the Lord be with you.